right, my friends, thank you for being here on this Wednesday night. Grab your hymn books. Let's all stand together as we worship the Lord in song tonight. Brother Ken will come lead us. Come on this evening. Let's stand together tonight. Amen. You blue song books tonight, hymn number 288. Page 288, I am resolved. We'll sing all three verses. That's hymn number 288 tonight. so much. Pray also for the Carroll family, Michaela's family, uh, some uh, in the in the homegoing of uh, uh, the stepfather, and then some spiritual needs there as well. We've been talking about you, buddy. We hear you got to have surgery next week. Wait till she kicks the other kneecap. Amen. Anybody else in the middle tonight want to share an outspoken request? Yes, ma'am, Sister Betty. Absolutely.
Okay, thank you for sharing that. Pray also for the bigs. I know you have been, but continue to keep them in prayer. Anyone else in the middle tonight? Outspoken. Yes, ma'am, Faith? Let's remember that. Thank you. I saw another hand go up in the middle. Yes, sir? Thank you, buddy. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right, on my left tonight, want to share an outspoken. Yes, ma'am? Absolutely. Thank you, Miss. I, got, I was going to call you Granny, and I just knew Miss Granny wasn't going to work right. Miss Leanne, thank you. So whatever, you've answered the worst, haven't you, honey? Somebody else outspoken on my left tonight. I saw another hand or two. Lisa? Absolutely. Absolutely. I saw another hand go up. Yes, sir? All right, certainly. Daryl? All right, very good. Any other outspoken requests tonight? Yes, ma'am. All right, sister, thank you so much. Unspoken request tonight. If you've got an unspoken request you'd like to bring to the Lord tonight, let's pray together this evening. Father, it is with humble arts we come to you this evening thanking you for the opportunity to be back in your midst tonight. We surely do not take for granted the fact that our church doors are open. And Lord, that folks have come out this evening ready to hear and open up the book and learn from heaven. I pray your blessings upon us tonight as we do just that. Lord, as we finalize our series on Esther and kick off our next series over the summer, Lord, I pray that you would illuminate yourself, uh, show Scripture to us in a way that we could apply it to our daily life. Lord, for all of these requests tonight, both spoken and unspoken, Lord, I'm so thankful tonight that you hear the outspoken request, but Lord, you also know the unspoken request, and you saw the many hands that were raised in honor tonight of an unspoken request. I pray that you would answer each one. And Lord, for those in our congregation who are mourning the loss of a loved one, who are facing surgical procedures, I pray that you would be an ever-present help in their time of need. Lord, bless us tonight as we sing, as we learn, and as we hear from heaven. We'll thank you and praise you for it in Jesus name. Brother Ken, let's have a song of fellowship tonight. We'll shake hands this evening. Brother Ken. Amen. You can be turning to hymn number 29 before we sing his song tonight and have a time of fellowship. Just a quick announcement for the uh, golf tournament this weekend. If you're making or bringing a pound cake, you can bring it to the daycare from 6, to, six in the morning, 6 at night downstairs on Friday. And if uh, you can't do that, please have it here by 11 a.m. in the teen room on Saturday. We'll be over here at 11 o'clock loading some tables and chairs up and getting ready for that. So just uh, remember the golf tournament as it uh, as this Saturday. So it, it is upon us now. So uh, let's uh, remember that this weekend. And if you're bringing a pound cake, you can always bring it to my house. <laughs> Hymn number 29, At the Cross. We'll sing it first verse. <laughs>
Grab your handbook again and turn to that same song, page 29. Page 29. Grab that. Grab the, your handbook one more time. Turn to that same song, page 29. You know I love hymns. You know I love hymnology. Love the story behind the hymns. And this is an unusual one with an unusual story and an unusual background to it. Again, page 29 in your hymn book. All right. As always, in your hymns, upper left-hand corner shows the song writer. Upper right-hand corner shows the person who put the song to music, the person who comp composed the music. Oftentimes, they are the same, but more often than not, they are not. And in this case, you have something a little unusual. You have the songwriter, whose name is Isaac Watts. And if you flip through the pages of your hymn book, his is a name that you will see three or four times, certainly not as prolific as someone like Fanny Crosby, uh, but, but a songwriter who had many songs nonetheless, and who, though he lived some 200 years before Fanny Crosby, was instrumental in the salvation of Fanny Crosby. And in this case, you have something really strange. We don't have this but two or three times in our hymn book. You've got the songwriter in the upper left-hand corner. And then just under that, you've got the refrain songwriter. All right, class, somebody tell me what the refrain is. What do we call the refrain today? The chorus. The chorus. The chorus of this song, which is actually where we get the name of it, was not written by this hymn writer. In fact, it was written a couple of hundred years after this hymn was written. This hymn writer, Isaac Watts, actually called the name of the song, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, which is, of course, the first line of that song. Sometimes in really old hymn books, especially of the turn of the century, 1800s to the 1900s, you will see Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed written as an isolated hymn because it wasn't until the early part of the 20th century that Ralph Hudson added the chorus to this song and the name changed from Alas and Did My Savior Bleed to At the Cross. In some really, really thick hymn books, you'll see both of them. And sometimes they're right beside of each other. You'll see Alas and Did My Savior Bleed and then you'll see At the Cross, which begins with Alas and Did My Savior Bleed. Isaac Watts was an incredible man. Let me read you a little bit of background on him. And he was alive in the early 1700s, Fanny Crosby in the 1900s. But I said a moment ago that he had a part, Isaac Watts, in the salvation of Fanny Crosby. Let me explain. After his graduation from college, Isaac Watts returned to Southampton, England, spent two years writing hymns for his church, then moved to London where he tutored children as a teacher for wealthy families. While there, he joined Mark Lane Independent Church. Soon he was asked to be a teacher there in the church, and in 1698, he was hired as their associate pastor. On his 24th birthday, he preached his first sermon, 1702. He became the senior pastor of the church, a position he kept for the rest of his entire life. By all accounts, Isaac Watts was a brilliant Bible student and a sermon writer extraordinaire that brought his church to life. In 1707, his hymns and spiritual songs was published. Isaac had written most of these hymns himself in Southampton in his late teens and early 20s. Included in this book was a hymn that is now considered by hymnologists as his finest work. Not, and by the way, that's not this one. It was a hymn that was considered by hymnologists as his best work and one of the top ten best, that sounds like a top 40 track, doesn't it? But one of the best hymns, certainly in the top ten ever written. He based his hymn on Galatians 6.14, which says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Originally, the first stanza said, When I survey the wondrous cross, where the young prince of glory died. But in, six, in 1709, he rewrote that hymn to say the following, When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but lost, and poor contempt on all my pride. That hymn, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, is in your hymn book. 
It's one that we don't sing very often. It's kind of fallen out of favor in the last 50, 60 years. But I challenge you at some point to look at the lyrics because they are beautifully profound. Now, how does all of this impact this song? What does this have to do with Fanny Crosby? Also included in that hymn book in 1707 were the songs that we still sing today, Come We That Love the Lord, and We're Marching to Zion. We're marching to beautiful, beautiful Zion. Another hymn included in there was, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed. The hymn later played a role in the conversion and salvation of a hymn writer by the name of Fanny Crosby. Fanny was 31 years old, attended a revival service at John Street Methodist Church in New York City. She says the following from her autobiography. After a prayer was offered, they began to sing the congregation hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Then they reached the fifth stanza, which said, But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. She said they got to the line that says, Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I could do. Fanny says when they reached that line was at that moment that I bowed my head and accepted Jesus Christ as Savior of my life. How right it is, folks, think about this, that some 200 years after this hymn was published, it would be part of the salvation experience of the greatest hymn writer who ever lived. I say that tonight to say this, you have no idea what your little nugget of grace can do for somebody else down the road. Let's look at the last couple of verses tonight. We'll do verse number 2 and verse number 5. Let's sing those two tonight. At the cross, at the cross. Uh, that chorus was added in the 1950s, but we're going to sing it out tonight. Here we go. Let's sing it now. Verse number 2. Was it for crimes? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon a tree. Let's go to verse number five, the verse that saved Fanny Crosby. But, or verse four, said, Grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Dear Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. That's the reason I kept saying verse 5. I think when we get to heaven, we independent Baptists are going to be blown away that hymns had more than first, second, and last verse. Amen. All right. Ushers, come on down tonight. Let's receive our Wednesday evening offering. Congregation, turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of Esther, chapter number 10 tonight. The book of Esther, chapter number 10. As we give you our final message tonight in our series that we've entitled for such a time as this. Father, bless the offering. May it be what you'd have it to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Take off, gentlemen, if you would, please.
number 20 in our series of message concluding tonight, the series that we titled for such a time as this, a series that we began back in September when the kids went back to school. And we told you that it would take us most of the year, the academic year, to get through it. And in fact, it took all of the academic year to get through it, uh, these some 20 messages. What an interesting and encouraging journey that we've had through this book together. I don't think there's a book in the Bible from my personal perspective that is as exciting as is the book of Esther. It is a reminder to us, I think, of a multitude of themes. I listed eight themes, which I will share with you at the end of the message tonight, that I think really resonate life applications for us that are clearly demonstrated in the book of Esther. One of which is very simple. God is faithful. God demonstrated over and over again that he was faithful to the Jews. I'll remind all of you that while these events are happening... In Persia, at the capital, Shushan, the palace, King Ahasuerus, that back over in Israel, back over in Jerusalem, Nehemiah is leading the group of folks to rebuild the wall, and Ezra is uh, uh, rereading the law. There are events happening over back in the promised land or back in Jerusalem, while these events are happening over in Persia. Not everyone who was allowed to return back to per, or return back to, to Jerusalem went back. Many decided to stay where they were because they'd established lives. They'd established families. And I'll remind you that, in fact, these folks, these Jews, were foreign slaves, yet the Lord provided favor for them through the obedience of this lady named Esther. The text that we're going to look at today, these three simple verses, concludes the book, and it gives us a little detail about the king Ahasuerus, and it gives us an important detail about one of the main players in this great drama of a book called Esther, and that's, of course, Cousin Mordecai. And I want to give you the title tonight, which I think is also one of the themes that permeates the book of Esther. The title is simply this, God honors those who honor God. God honors those who honor God. Let's look, if we can tonight, the three verses. We'll read all three of them in advance, and then we'll break them apart, unpack them, and dive in together. Read verse number one, if you would, please, with me. The king Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea. And all the acts of his power and of his might, and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media, or Medea at some time, not the Medea you're thinking about, of Media, it's actually Medea, but I knew if I said Medea, everybody would just die laughing. And Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. Three points that we'll look at tonight. Each one of these verses being a point in this message, God honors those who honor God. Number one, and in verse number one, I want you to note with me the taxation that is imposed. Now, I have to be honest with you. This is a verse that at first glance seems to be out of place. It seems to be an unusual notation. In fact, I will tell you that I read a few commentators who said things like, in better versions, this verse is not included. That's hogwash. There's a reason why that verse is there. There's a reason why that verse is in the location that it is. I will grant you that it does seem to be a bit of an unusual verse because it seems to say out of nowhere, Ahasuerus was taxing his people. 
But as we get into this tonight, I hope to explain to you why that verse is so important to this notion that we're going to look at. Let's read verse one more time. And King Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land. The word tribute just means what, class? Taxes. He taxed the land and upon the isles of the sea. Notice, if you would, that this simply means that sometime following the great victory that led to the Feast of Purim, this great victory where the Jews were spared by the providence of God, that the king imposed a tax upon the land. Now, I don't think I have to spend a whole lot of time explaining to anybody what a tax is. You pay them regularly every time you get a paycheck. Uh, you pay your taxes, and I will remind you that it is a commandment of God that we pay our taxes. I've heard some foolish people say some foolish things and try to use God as a way to do some foolish things. I've heard people say things like, well, if taxpaying money uh, funds abortions, uh, then I'm not going to pay my taxes. I will come and visit you at the state pen if that's your attitude. And I'll smile as I wave out the door because i got to go to work and pay my taxes. Amen. I'll also remind you that Jesus Christ himself said, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. The reason he answered the question in that capacity was the Pharisees were trying to trick him. Because guess what, folks? The Jews hated paying taxes. I always get amused when I hear people talk about how much they, 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 they hate uh, the national taxation system, especially really wealthy people. Because I always want to say the same thing. If you want to send more in, they'll take it. Amen. They won't deny it. And that's exactly what was happening with the Pharisees. They wanted to trick Christ because they knew that the Jews hated paying taxes. So they said, I'm going to paraphrase, Lord, should we really give Caesar any money? And the Lord said, pick a coin out of your pocket. Whose face is on it? And they said, Caesar. So he said, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's. In other words, pay your taxes. It's part of your Christian duty. It's part of your God-fearing duty. But you also note here that this expanse went well beyond just the territories, but now includes islands that were in the sea. Up until this point, the only thing we knew about the Persian Empire, which according to our scripture, was that it had 127 provinces. It was comprised of what we might think of as 127 states. I want you to understand this, folks. The Persian Empire is one of the world's largest empires ever. It is one of the world's largest, grandest empires ever. And I believe, this is a little bit of Gregology, I believe that that is why that verse is there. Because after the victory of the Jews, after they were preserved, the kingdom of Persia expanded greatly. In fact, you can trace this out in secular history. The man that we call Ahasuerus is the same one that Joshua referred to in his message Sunday night, Artaxerxes. That's his Greek name. So the, the, uh, uh, the, the king Ahasuerus of Persia wanted to expand upon the Greek empire. And so to do that, he levied taxes uh, against the people in an effort to expand upon that empire. And the Persian empire became one of the largest empires in the history of humanity. You say, Pastor Greg, what's the big deal about that? I want to remind you that... When you think about this Persian Empire, one of the greatest that ever, on par with the Roman Empire. Are you with me, church? We're talking about a monstrous vastness of land. The man in control was the king. But do you know who the second man was? Mordecai. So I believe that God puts this verse here to remind us that this person, this, 
seemingly when you read the first couple of chapters of Esther this man who by all practical purpose was just kind of a run of the mill nobody is now second in command to one of the largest empires in human history so we go from number one the taxation that's imposed to the heart of the message in verse number two which I'm calling the declaration that is inscribed Look at verse number two again. And all the acts of his power. Let's stop there for just a second. Who is the his? Well, let's read, let's continue reading. All the acts of his power and of his might, the direct declaration of the greatness of Mordecai. Let me stop there again. Because of the closeness of the next clause. There are many commentators who believe the first part of verse number 2 is talking about Mordecai. I don't believe it is. We have to get into a little bit of English language, and I won't bore you with the details of that. Whenever you talk about pronoun-noun agreement, the, 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 you, most of you know what a noun is, a person, place, or thing. The pronoun that comes after it is called the antecedent, if you will. That noun-pronoun-antecedent relationship always goes back to the noun that precedes it. So what the heck does that mean? Look at verse number 2. And all the acts of his power and of his might. To understand who the his is, you don't jump forward to the next noun. You go backward to the most recent noun. And the most recent proper noun is found in verse number 1. Who is it about? Ahasuerus, the king. So I think the first part of verse number 2 is referencing the reign, the kingdom of Ahasuerus. Because it says, and all the acts of his power and of his might, and jump with me to the end of the verse, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? By all accounts, King Ahasuerus was one of the wealthiest, one of the most powerful, one of the richest people who ever lived. King Ahasuerus doesn't get quite the print, doesn't get quite the celebrity status as do people like Caesar Augustus or Julius Caesar. There's no Shakespearean play written about King Ahasuerus. There are no movies written about King Ahasuerus like there are the Caesars. But I want you to listen to me carefully, and this is very important to the message tonight. King Ahasuerus was one of the wealthiest and most powerful people who ever walked this planet. What does that matter? Well, we go from the reign of the king to the middle part of this verse, which I'm going to call the recognition of Mordecai. Go back to verse number 2. All the acts of his power and of his might, the declaration of the... And notice, again, that goes back to the king, but we get to the next clause. And the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai. The declaration of the greatness of Mordecai. Recorded right beside of the statement that talks about the power, the wealth, and the might of this king is a simple statement that says not only was he important, but his second in command was important as well. What does all of that matter? I have to remind you that when we opened Esther chapter 1, we read chapters 1, 2, and 3, that Mordecai had been found sitting at the gate. He was in mourning, sackcloth, ashes, mourning the decree of the Jews. Listen now, the king didn't even know his name. By all accounts, please understand what I'm about to say. I don't mean this in any derisive way. 
But in terms of wealth, in terms of importance, in terms of notoriety, Mordecai was a nobody. But then God got involved. But then God got involved. To give you an analogy that you would understand and that would make sense by comparison to our day. When somebody wins the national nomination of one of the major political parties in our country, one of the first things that they will often do is to pick a running mate. You understand that process? We've just come through it. One of the first things they do as the soon-to-be president or hopeful to be president is to pick the running mate who will be their vice president. And typically, these these, these wannabe presidents, these national political leaders, will look to other national political leaders. Usually, that person will pick someone who's been a congressman. They'll pick someone who's been a senator. They'll pick someone who's been from the House of Representatives. Oftentimes, they'll pick someone who's led a state. They've been a governor. Every so often, They'll dip down into state legislatures, but that's very, very rare. They want folks who've got a national presence, who've got a national name that can help them carry a state or carry a region of the country. But imagine if a political leader just ran or just won their their party's nomination and they don't pick a senator. They don't pick a member of the House of Representatives. They don't pick a governor. Imagine for just a second if, if, if someone just won the national Democratic ticket or won the national Republican ticket and he picked a janitor. I mean, we laugh at that. Imagine if he picked a plumber. Imagine if he picked a trash collector. Somebody that nobody knows. I have to tell you that his advisors would look at him and say, have you lost your mind? Nobody knows who that person is. He can bring you no advantage. She's of no benefit to you. You can't pick somebody who's a nobody. They are of no value. Would you please get this? That was the relationship between the king and Mordecai. You've got somebody who is the wealthiest and most powerful, And he picks as his second in command someone who is totally unknown. That's the reason I say to you tonight the title of the message. God honors those who honor God. God honors those who honor God. So let me say to everybody in the building tonight. I, I cannot promise you. In fact, I can almost guarantee you. I don't think anybody in this building's ever going to be on the ticket of a major party nomination. I don't think we've got in our midst tonight the next uh, uh, a Democratic nominee VP or Republican nominee VP. But do you understand that whether you are a trash collector, whether you are a building inspector, Whether you are somebody that nobody knows, God honors those who honor God. Let me give you the third point tonight. Number one, we said the taxation imposed. Number two, the declaration inscribed. Number three, and most importantly, the admiration that's expressed. I'm going to say this to you tonight because in verse number 3 of every part of Esther that we've read, all 10 chapters, chapter 10, verse number 3, is one of the verses that I have marked in my Bible as a testimony verse for me. In fact, I will tell you that it is chapter 10, verse number 3. When I read it again for the 10,000th time last year in personal Bible study, that it jumped out at me as one of those verses that led me to say, we got to study this entire book. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus. His placement is very clear in all of this vast 
kingdom of Persia. Millions of square miles, perhaps millions of people, certainly millions of dollars in tax revenue. The only person who had more power than Mordecai was the king. Our Bible has multiple examples of that. I'll remind you that Persia wasn't a Christian nation, wasn't a Jewish nation. In fact, they were slaves. Can I, can I call your attention to the fact that Joseph wasn't an Egyptian, but he was promoted in Egypt. Daniel wasn't a Babylonian, but he was promoted in Babylon. Mordecai is not a Persian, but he's promoted in Persia. I hear preachers, and I, I love preachers. There's nobody that loves preachers more than I do. But I hear preachers get this wrong a lot. God did not save us to remove us from society. God saved us to influence society. And please listen to me. You can influence that in which you are not involved. Amen. Let me say that again. We cannot influence folks with whom we are not involved. Now, there's always a danger. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I believe that God places people in the right positions at the right times to accomplish His will. And Mordecai and Esther were two of those folks. His placement becomes his popularity. Look at the middle part of that verse. Let's read the first part again. For Mordecai, the Jew, was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren. You see, not only had Mordecai gained favor of his own people, favor of the king, but he gained favor of all the Jews, and he was accepted by the Jews. Would you, would you amen me on this? It really didn't matter that Mordecai was favored by the king if he's not favored by his people. You see, this is what I think is so critical. And I wish every teenager would get this, and every young adult, and even moms and dads. Mordecai is the perfect, perfect illustration of this simple point. You don't have to compromise who you are to be used of God and promoted of God. Go back and look at the three examples we just cited. Joseph didn't become like the Egyptians uh, when he was promoted in Egypt. Daniel didn't become like the Babylonians when he was promoted in Babylon. And Mordecai didn't become like the Persians when he was promoted in Persia. In fact, they stood for truth, they stood for righteousness, and God elevated them among their peers. I believe this little little verse teaches and is one of the reasons why it's a testimony verse of mine that while we are not please listen to what I'm about to say while we are not called to seek the approval of the world we must maintain an honest reputation we must be people of integrity in front of the world we are not called to gain the world's popularity but we are called to be Christ-like in the world let me give it to you another way we don't have to be of the world to win the world and in fact as this world continues to drift further and further away from a sense of godly decency I believe the world today and society today is craving people of integrity people who don't necessarily shove a Bible down people's throat, but they just do what's right. They just live a Christ-centered, God-filled daily life, and they're people of integrity. And when you listen to this, people see that. People notice that. People see that. No, amen. Nobody wants a Bible shoved down their throats. But my, my, my. When somebody's world starts falling apart, I can promise you they're going to come to people that they know that's a child of God. They're going to see something different 
and people of integrity. Please listen to what I'm about to say. God does the unusual in those circumstances. Let me give you the last part of that verse tonight. Go back to verse 10. Notice what it says. Let's read the whole thing. Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren. Here's the part of the verse that I have underlined. Seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. What does that mean? That means God promoted Mordecai to a place of incredible influence. Mordecai, in turn, used that influence to make sure God's people were taken care of. I don't know about you, but I get goosebumps when I read that. You know what that says to me? That says to me that Mordecai, though he was now in a place he never dreamed, had money that he never imagined, had power that he never thought about, he did not forget his heritage, he didn't forget where he came from. After reaching this position of status, influence, he recognized that God gave him this position so that he could advocate for the people of God. I have shared this to you on so many occasions, but I will share again. We in our country desperately need that kind of leadership today. Why, preacher? Because the majority in government, the majority in higher education, the majority of those in authority, oftentimes they sell out, they abandon they fail to remember who it was that got them to that place to begin with. We need folks today who are committed to serving the Lord and advancing the work of His kingdom in positions of authority. I think sometimes an independent fundamental Baptist, we've become so accustomed to being put upon that we act like we should be put upon. We've become so accustomed to our rights and our dignity being trampled on that we walk around like we're expecting our rights and our dignity to be trampled on. There are still, please listen, there are still people of influence and power in government who are still believers in Jesus Christ. There are still a few people in higher education who are believers in Jesus Christ. There are still a few people throughout our country who are wanting to see God take them into places of authority so that they can advocate on behalf of God's people. So I'll close tonight with seven or eight themes, and I'll go through them quickly. Themes that I think permeate the book of Esther. Number one, and this is simple and applicable to every single person. Note it with me. Bloom where you're planted. If you're not willing to serve God where he has you now, you won't serve him when he gets you someplace else. Number two, a second theme of Esther. Through it all, God's faithful.